You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in, AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. Wow. So this was an interesting conversation. I'm talking to David Livermore, who is president and partner at the Cultural Intelligence Center and a visiting research fellow at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. Uh, He's done consulting and training with leaders in 100 countries and is the author of Leading with Cultural Intelligence. But he's got a new book. So the title is going to give away what this conversation is all about. Uh, the title of the new book is Digital, Diverse, and Divided, How to Talk to Racists, Compete with Robots, and Overcome Polarization. We solved nothing in this conversation, but I think it's a good one that we're having. So enjoy the podcast. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting DSAMed. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. David Livermore, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kelly. I want to start our conversation with something you wrote in the last chapter of your new book. Uh, you write, quote, of Americans agree that hate speech is a key problem, but 80% also agree that political correctness has gone too far. 63% of Americans are concerned that the country's refugee screening process is not tough enough to keep out possible terrorists, but 64% simultaneously believe people should be able to take refuge. Most Americans are not centrists, end quote. That's powerful because that's not a sentiment you are hearing and then as I've said that to people, they've been like, that seems true and would be very good information to have if we want to reframe the terrible conversations that we're having today. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So talk to us about what that means in the scope of you sitting down to write this book. 
Yeah. So I, I guess to, to the very point you're making, like on the one hand, it looks alarming when you see the polarization and, and pick a week. You know, what is it this week? Oh, my God. <laughs> this week, it's the raid on Trump. You know, two yep. weeks ago, it was reproductive rights. What will it be next week, et cetera? So so at surface level, it's like, oh, crap. You know, there, there's no way we're ever going to overcome polarization. Um, and then, you know, the other I swing the pendulum the other way. and go, Oh, no, actually, we all just want to kind of be in the middle. And to the point that you just raised, no, that's not true either. But there's nuance for all of us throughout this. So, yeah, I I guess why those things kind of like inspired me then to write the book was to say, hang on a second. Like, actually, some of the same skills I've been teaching global executives for years on how a German engineer needs to get along with an Indian programmer are not that different from how red and blue need to understand each other in the U.S. or you know, ideological differences of any other sort. As I'm thinking about this, I'm recalling Peter McGraw, who's a professor, Boulder, uh, Colorado, who had a line in his book of uh, people want iced tea or they want hot tea. What they don't want is warm tea. Warm tea. tea. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're like, oh, yeah, that's actually a good point. And I think a lot of us, you know, like it, this happens in art all the time, which is, hey, let's try to appeal to as many people as possible. The minute you do that, right. you lose any sort of edge or nuance to your work. Yeah, like like have some boldness, have some conviction. But, you know, you don't have to be an ass about it. Let me be bold about my conviction, too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, along those lines, you, you cite the Human Genome Project. And I had no idea about this stat. Can you tell us about the the similarity of our dna from that project yeah so it's a little dangerous for me to talk too much into it too okay I'm certainly not a geneticist etc but yeah as, as you have just noted that the human genome project found that 99.9 percent of our dna is the same you me a swedish woman a nigeria man you know republican democrat etc and so as you know having done due diligence on the book i, I kind of start the book with that premise and i initially got some pushback from diversity experts like whoa, 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 whoa. are you calling for colorblind here like kumbaya we're all the same why can't we all get along and of course not like i think we no. need to lean into the differences but to me it was powerful to step back and go Okay, these are socially constructed differences. So, like at the core of how we actually, like our, our biological makeup is the same. So, how do we start with that shared view of humanity? And then, of course, let's lean into our differences. Let's not just uh, stand apart on, on the sidelines from it. So, this this was interesting throughout reading this book because, you know, um, uh, we're a couple white guys who are going to talk about, you know, the, the, right. these views. Um, but I think we need to, and and I think I think we, like to to not silence is certainly not the the thing to go to, and having worked with behavioral scientists, there's so much incredible nuance, and one of the things that a lot of my pals in that field point out is that there are so many biases, I mean hundreds of biases that at any given time trying to isolate which one is happening at what point is 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 complex, and and mm. soon after you talk about the human genome project, you also bring up. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's work around intersectionality, and I think that's what you're sort of saying is like, you're, yes, there's this this thing we connect, and then there's this these systems that have sort of grown up around us that are also getting in the way. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, oh, that our 99.9% same DNA is all that explains who we are as people. Like, uh, of right. course not. 
And uh, as you know well, you know, Crenshaw's intersectionality work has noted that even though we're two white guys, okay, that's one part of our identity. There's all these other parts. And of course, she noted powerfully that you can't have the same solution for an African-American woman as you do an African-American man because there there are double barrel differences for the woman. However, it was striking to me to see Crenshaw herself say, hang on, my work has been co-opted to suddenly become identity politics on steroids, where it's right. like, unless you're the exact same intersectional identity, which of course is impossible, as this person, you have no right to even be speaking into what they're doing. And so then at some point, it's like, then, you know, it's rightful for you and I as two white guys to give pause to should we even be weighing in on Here's what people need to think about diversity. On the other hand, if we just sit back and remain silent, then that doesn't seem quite right either to fully abdicate responsibility. And my friends, my activist friends uh, uh, of color, uh, many of whom are women, um, the thing about that I have noticed that bonds a lot of them together is joy. Uh, mm. They love to laugh. Uh, their inclu- their inclusion uh, of of me, of my wife, of my family, of uh, others, of anyone they meet, and it's it's like, th- and and these are people who are at the forefront of some very hard work. Um, it's not they're not the ones who are screaming on social media. They're the ones who are actually on Capitol Hill doing the work. I love that. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you talk about uh, an anthropologist by the name of Dorothy Holland and this idea of figured worlds which really sort of was powerful. And can, can you talk to us about what, what that is? Yeah, so so she's done some great research on saying we're all a part of many figured worlds that really shape the way that we view reality. And of course, the most powerful figured world that most of us inherit are the biological families into which we're born or adoptive families. But then we keep taking on these other figured worlds. So it's, you know, people have said to me, well, is it the same as a culture? Perhaps, but I think with culture, we immediately think of race, ethnicity, international. But the artist community, clearly there's a figured world of the artist community that shapes how you view the world as artists. And the same for me. Quick illustration of that. There's no research behind this at all, but bear with me for a second, Kelly. So I've just moved from the Midwest, uh, where you are, to San Diego last weekend. And on both ends of the move, we, of course, you know, as good movers do, bought lunch for the people moving us. And I I asked the guys both in Grand Rapids, Michigan and in San Diego, any dietary restrictions we need to be mindful of? And this is six guys on each side. Every single one of them said, no, I'll, I'll eat anything. And I was like... When was the last time I've been with 12 people who had zero dietary restrictions? And now, lest your listeners are like, what, you don't think dietary restrictions are real? I I think they are, but it just gave me pause to say, to what degree do our figured worlds shape in us like, oh, you should and you shouldn't eat these things? Of course, there's there's allergies and all those kinds. I have some myself. But that's an example of what Holland is getting at with figured worlds, that these social worlds in which we live start to prescribe. If you're a good human, you eat these things, you don't eat these things. And then guess what? That plays out into politics. And we don't even really know what we're talking about with critical race theory or reproductive rights. We just know what what our favorite news channel told us about it. Um, 
and you also note in this section about that that our these figure roles tend to become scripted um and what what we know and and this and this shows up in different kinds of literature is is in a lot of social justice literature is this the sort of group improvisation that that can happen uh that is a way for us to move beyond our scripts and also because improvisation is so others focused on 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 that so my job as an improviser is to make you look good and if I do that, you're going to do the same to me, and we're good. Uh, you, we can really surmount a lot of a lot of problems, but I think it's 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 hard for people to go scriptless. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I, that's what I really like about Holland's figured world notion is it links well to your more pragmatic improvisational approach that says, you know, I'm I'm not a cultural determinist that says, well, I was born into this family, so this is the way I have to think and believe. We all have agency to improvise. Um, I love your view on it of that the improvisation is oriented toward the other rather yeah. than just what do I want to do to be true to myself. Yeah, because what what we've realized, I mean, and the founders of Second City were prescient uh, with this, and and the forebears there there before, which, which is like you don't get good improv that 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 way, and and the, the the sort of mutual discovery that happens is usually a flow state that exists between those people. It's also system one, system two, going back and forth, um, and so uh, that that and, and as I learned about Conan's work and and this other thing, I'm like. This is why we end up working with behavioral scientists because we can model. I mean, even the concept of yes and right is is akin to behavioral economics and the whole nudge theory, right? Um, d- despite the replication issues that, that everyone's talking about, we don't need to go into. Um, well, I was just going to say too. You just made me think that you were ahead of the curve on the infamous diversity's platinum rule. You know, don't treat people the way you want to be treated. The golden rule: treat people the way they want to be treated. To your point, I, mean, I hadn't thought about that. Improvisation fails if I just do what I think is funny. You know? Yeah, we don't. That looks that looks terrible. Right. Yeah. No. No. I, and it's funny. So when we uh, in the old days, we we have less of this problem now. But back back in the '90s, when we'd hold our, our general auditions and kind of anyone could come, um, not a great idea because uh, you would often get people who had no experience doing this, and and they would, and then and then when we have to separate them into like scenes with just one other person. Our, our golden rule is you find the best improviser to work with this person because they are going to find some way to make them wow. look good. And they do. And the problem with that is that this person goes away being like, I just did the best scene ever. Yeah, I killed they it. They don't realize it was like, no, we're laughing because you're so bad. And this, <laughs> I, I, very specifically, Adam McKay, the film director, I remember him doing this with someone. And he was just like, he justified everything that they said, made it work somehow. And it was beautiful, but but yeah, it, it was a little problematic when we had to explain <laughs> yeah, that didn't work. Um, you note that you're uh, a little bit of an unusual character to, in some regards with your backstory and growing up to be in the space. Do you want to talk yeah. a bit about your, your yeah. childhood and then how you ended up here? Yeah, that, that was very diplomatically stated, Kelly. Yeah. So, so I, for a long time, I cloaked the fact that I grew up as, you know, a fundamentalist Christian. Um, and, you know, it's really hard now, especially with video calls and all to cloak the fact that I'm a white middle-aged guy, you know, cisgender, straight, just keep going with the, the privilege yeah. metaphors. But yeah, I, I grew up very much indoctrinated with our way is not only the best way, it's the only right way. And, you know, I, I grew up aspiring to be a missionary and that was really what gave me mm. my internal, like kind of interest in culture. And, uh, 
you know, as I began to travel the world and as I began to initially just even interact with other Christians, found that not everybody landed in their same interpretation of the Bible and Jesus as I did. And then beyond that, as I began to interact more with people of other faiths or who didn't really hold the faith at all, suddenly saw that there were people who had some of the very same morals and ideals, but arrived at them differently. So, yeah, I think that's that's an important part of my journey in this discovery of cultural intelligence, where I often say, cultural intelligence, yeah, it was an academic pursuit, but it also kind of saved my own soul of saying there's a way for me to still be a person of faith and have values and convictions without presuming that my job is to now proselytize you to believe what I believe and think that that's the only way that we could have community and and do good work together. So one of the interesting things that happened, and I just thought of this, like I didn't write this in my notes. So I take take notes after I read the book and and I've got a lot of them. Um, But I was on the phone with my pal, Heather Caruso. So Heather and I co-led the Second Science Project at the University of Chicago. She is now the Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion at UCLA, among other things. Uh, Heather, Nigerian and Vietnamese woman, scholar, like really close friend. And she's d- developing programs at UCLA. And a lot of it is based around uh, self-determination theory. Hmm. Um, and I, I don't know if this... I remember saying to her, I think this is showing up in your book, uh, it maybe without the exact same language and the, and the three elements, and she's actually changed her kind of own version of this is that to have to, to sort of successfully have these conversations across difference, you need to have what she calls authorship, belonging and competence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that you, you go there, right. And in the, in the book, I think you're saying the same thing. And, and because I like, and this competence piece is a big one because it is very hard. Like, like uh, I'm behind the curve on, understanding gender, you know, and having that knowledge. So I feel a little incompetent and I work with a lot of trans people uh, who, who I love and care for. And I think we feel the same way about me. Um, but, but I, you know, I'm a little incompetent in that. I think I have the other stuff, you know, but I, so can you talk a little bit about that and how it might relate to what you're writing about? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say that because I think even in, in, if we rise above just the polarization topic that we've talked about here, but to more broadly, the intercultural work that I've been a part of, this has actually been the problem throughout the years of, you know, sending an expat overseas and let's tell them the do's and don'ts of what they need to do in China. And then they get to China and go, well, there's a billion people in China, which yeah. Chinese person are we talking about? And we haven't actually taught them the skill set, the competence. So that's really what kind of gave birth to our work in cultural intelligence, which then does bring me back to the polarization topic of as I started to observe what was happening in our our society, in our world at large, but especially our country, I'm like, wait, the same thing is happening. We're just spouting off memes or, you know, looking for information that confirms what we already think. And we think that education is going to lead to change. We haven't actually given people the skill set of how to engage competently in conversations that overcome it. Um, but yeah, there, I, so I haven't looked at, at her modification of self-determination theory, but I think that you're absolutely right that there's intersection between that and the way that I'm trying to get at these ideas of how am I authoring and agenting my my own uh, narrative and story? You know, what does it look like to feel like I belong? And then what is the skill set that I need to actually do that effectively? I think one of the things... And it's not just this area. I think it's broadly in a lot of areas, and it's come up on a lot of different podcasts across a lot of different domains, is we're trapped in bad metaphors. We, we've created a lot of metaphors for ourselves that then get ingrained that we think that that metaphor is the thing that it is when it's not. You know, whether it's Annie Murphy Paul talking about the brain is computer, 
um, or, okay. or even our language of like a word like master and where that comes from and how we, how we use that or don't do that. Um, you actually say in the book, quote, a word is never just a word. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah. Yeah. And again, this is where I drive people crazy because I talk out of both sides of my mouth because a, yeah. a word is never just a word. But then sometimes I think we start to fixate on the language and vocabulary and we never get to the real issue. And, you know, at the beginning of Pride Month, I saw all kinds of, you know, tweets coming out of people screaming about which letters of the alphabet we should be using now to refer to the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah. And, it, and again, they're easy for me to say as someone who's not directly part of that community. So I think I think language is important, but let's not like just focus on that and miss kind of what are the the more critical issues we're trying to get at. So one of the things you talk about is perspective taking, which is a big interest of mine. And there's a study that Adam Galinsky did. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's no surprise to me that you think a lot about perspective taking because I can't imagine how you do effective improv without it. And of course, um, as your listeners know, well, it's simply how effectively can I take on the perspective of another individual? Yeah. Galinsky's done some of the best work on this. So he had a group of students in New York who, um, three different groups that needed to observe uh, an elderly man sitting on a street corner by a newsstand. And the first one, he didn't give any constraints to. Just write down on a page what you see when you observe this man. The second one, he's, second group, he said to, um, hey, I want you to purposely avoid any evaluative or stereotypical language. Just write down descriptions. How is he seated? What do you see that's there? And then to the third group, he said, now I want you to engage in first-person perspective-taking. I want you to actually imagine you are that man. How are you feeling today? What do you see? And the results were fascinating that the first group for whom that the control group for whom he gave no parameters, I mean, all kinds of very, all this old man who's probably very lonely and, you know, failing and doesn't have long to live. Second group. Yeah, it was fairly clinical description. He is sitting there. Perhaps he sits there every day and sees some of the people. The most positive description was the third group who did first person. Oh, I've seen so much throughout my life and look at the things that I'm engaging here. And so uh, I think that's a really powerful way of demonstrating to what degree can I think about my other um, ideologically, politically, culturally, racially, uh, sexual orientation, etc. And could I actually voice in a non-pejorative way? Like, what does my day look like? How do I actually view things. And I I find it kind of tempers my own judgmental, uh, yeah, kind of interpretation of how I see it. I may still end up saying that I don't agree with your viewpoint on that, but can I at least kind of see it through your, your eyes without immediately moving to judgment on whether or not it's right or wrong? Well, it's it, there's two things that I want to pick up on this. One, one is the seeing the other person as someone having a mind and a that's a start. That's a start. We recently um, were part of a study that got published with Islet Fishbach at University of Chicago, where we took a bunch of level A, so first beginner improv students, the, the whole program, and half the group um, was not told anything before doing this exercise. And the other half was being told, hey, this is going to be um, uh, uncomfortable, and, and that's okay. Like, like it, and the group that was t- simply told it's going to be uncomfortable, uh, reported back a greater satisfaction in terms of, uh, they, they were at it longer. They had a bet, they had a better time. They made discoveries. And it's very similar in terms of like, this is a smallest intervention. Yeah. Tiny. And yet, like, like this, like the study that you, you talk about, I mean, that is a dramatic shift. Yeah. And so that again gives me a, 
bit of hope with regard to like, you know, we 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 know we can get people or a lot of people there, it, but there's so much noise between <laughs> that study and what we're talking about, and then actionable making it actionable in the world. Right. Yeah. Okay. So in in that same sort of section, you say, "quote For dialogue about racism to be constructive, there needs to be enough discomfort." to foster productive reflection mm. and change, but not so much that our friends shut down and become defensive. Again, okay, so we're talking about discomfort and that sort of thing, like <laughs> where and how. Yeah. So there's a, a whole school of thought called the zone of productive disequilibrium, you know? So yeah, yeah, yeah. The, which you just kind of described really well. Yeah, so for me, and again, I I know all the critiques that will come from this kind of statement coming from a white privileged guy like me, but I just, I become such a pragmatist that it's hard for me to see where we're going to get anywhere if we just keep screaming at people about their privilege and shame and blame game. And hey, I'm very interested in sitting with some of that conversation and thinking yeah. it through. So that's where it's, we need to have some of the discomfort. Mm -hmm. But frankly, I mean, I don't say this lightly, but you and I could walk away from this conversation tomorrow and very little is going to change about our lives. So somehow we got to keep the, the people who know they have that prerogative engaged to enough to actually care about it, but enough discomfort to actually grow in it. So, yeah, D'Angelo talks about this a lot in her, her white fragility piece of just like, you know, we we can't be so concerned about the tears or the discomfort. But if people have walked out of the training session, et cetera, then what have we actually gained by it? Yeah, I I think this is if we take this out into another domain of maybe even a philosophical domain. And there's something something comes up in therapy all the time with me, which is we have to walk through the world with with joy and suffering. That, that that you can't have one without the other that that so so this sort of and and i think we can take a lot from eastern religion that the that the dualistic nature of things when we understand that um we don't need to be trapped in either we don't need to be trapped in a pollyannic idea of of this and not understand like the jail system is pro real problematic in, in in this country and we should all talk to each other to try to find ways to move forward Hmm. Yeah, that 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 is it. And, and again, being someone who works with a lot of young people uh, and my wife's a tenured college professor as well and works here. It's like, well, I'm not going to talk. I don't think I'm going to talk about that on social media. I think I will talk about it in the context of a exactly. uh, longer form podcast. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that I, I'm really passionate about as we apply cultural intelligence to these issues of polarization is I have to know my audience to know when, you know, you, you referenced this earlier, not everyone is open to the conversation. So don't waste your breath, you know, but when you have the right counterpart in the right situation. I, I'm thinking back too to your comment a few minutes ago, Kelly, that you said that a lot of your African-American activists, women, friends um, lead with joy. And, yeah. you know, that, that there's something that's contagious about that. Many of my African-American friends in the, the DEI world are talking a lot about calling in rather than calling out. And I guess yeah. that's the same thing. If you're going to be called in, it is going to be uncomfortable. It's yeah. not that we're just going to be like, oh, just treat me gently. But you know, 
I guess it, it comes back to my having grown up in fundamentalism. Shame wasn't a lasting motivator for me. Believe me, I heard it every Sunday and you know, etc. Yeah. But at the end of the day, shame wasn't going to was compel me, call me to something that we can actually do together to make the world a better place. And then, you know, I'm willing to kind of look at what are some of the adjustments and compromises I need to make. And I think what I think I picked up from the book too is that like faith still plays a part in your a big part in your life, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think I have much more appreciation for the way other faiths also inspire that. But yeah, I still consider myself a person of faith, and it still is a, a motivating factor for me. Um, I wrote a note here. It doesn't have quotes, so I, I don't know exactly where I took it yeah. from, but I wrote, I wrote down the importance and trouble with authenticity. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's, let's, because this is a, but people often, um, when they hire Second City to work with their people, um, they're like, we, we want them to be authentic. And it's like, but do you? But <laughs> right. do you? And what does that mean? So, right. so, t- t- and I think that's what probably you're getting at. What, yeah, what it, it exactly is. So, again, like the acknowledgement part is I realize, like, I'm not, I don't have to cloak very much my authentic self. Like, sure, I said a few minutes ago, like, I didn't really talk very much about the fact that I was pursuing becoming a missionary in my professional life but you know compared to the gay person that's not sure whether or not they can bring their partner to a staff function etc so i i get why we want people to be free to bring their whole selves to work but in reality none of us are bringing our whole selves to work ever and we probably don't want anyone to like there's appropriate coats we there's things that you and i are going to talk about right now because this is going to be publicly put on your podcast that i would do very differently if i was talking to you one-on-one over a cup of coffee and is that that we're not being authentic i think it's the the word change we're improvising based upon where the audience is so i guess it's just another one of those like overly simplistic pop psychology of we need everyone to be their true selves well can we can we kind of to your point to your prospective clients can we talk about what you really mean by that um one of the one of the useful pieces in that area for me was when i got introduced to uh goffman's work irving goffman yeah. who, who and and i think the theatrical metaphor is interesting here yeah, that, that we have this onstage self a backstage self and and right and i think because because 100 we're performing all the time right all the time and and, and my performance for my family at home is going to be different than my performance at work. And I think the pro- I, there, there's a number of problems here. I mean, w- one of the things that I think is an, it's starting to disappear a little bit, but, but is, is when you deny um, the whole of yourself at, at work, you're probably denying work some really great self. Absolutely. Um, and, and, but that, but I think we're hitting on the right thing, which is that doesn't mean I wearing hot you know hot pants like like that would be that would be inappropriate in terms of the conference i'm going to exactly yeah i it's just again it's it's um this problem of living with the both and right i mean it's like it's like like the yes and makes sense for a lot of people i think the both and is the thing that that they have a lot of problems with because what is that i think it was fitzgerald always gets credit with intelligence keeping two opposite ideas in your mind at the same time (laughs) not not easy for 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 people uh you also write in this sort of same chapter quote listen to many futurists and you would think that robotic engineers and therapists will be the only people with jobs in 10 years so, <laughs> yeah and actors of course a- actors yeah and i also and i get hired a lot to talk at hr 
things. I'm like, HR is going to be the most powerful division in years Mm -hmm. when they figure out that they need their people to have peak performance and they're the only ones who know how to do that. Great insight. I mean, they, they, because we're because we're like the incentive structures are all wrong. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's like it, it, it's, it, this. Is, this comes up all the time on the podcast. It's like it must frustrate the hell out of you that that like you have all these insights, the scientific insights. I mean, people were talking about how brilliant Peter Drucker was like seventy five years ago, and they still haven't adopted any of that stuff. <laughs> right. It's still top down. Yeah. <laughs> right. Let's make it look like we're a very flat structure. Let's make it look like like we're flat. Okay. In a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story. But before we do that, um, in your chapter on race, and, and we've kind of covered this in terms of you, you said you were leery of writing this chapter. Were you leery of writing that line? Uh, no, but I had some pre-readers who advised me to take it out of there. So but, what made you keep it in? So there's my authenticity. I, okay. I was genuinely leery of doing it. And I thought it was important for me to acknowledge that I know there are going to be people who are like, really, a white guy is going to talk to us about race. And I, I own that. I, they should be skeptical. They should say what lived experience. But so, yes, I, I had I don't think I was leery of writing the line, but I had people cautioning me against it. But this is your field of study, right? You, 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 you do the work. Yeah, and that's that's where I think I was trying to find a fine line of not being overly apologetic and like, oh no, I don't, I don't have anything to say about this. Like, yeah, I've, I've devoted a couple decades of work on this, but theoretical insight is not the same as lived experience. So once again, we're back to the both and. I think I have something to say to it, but it's just a piece of what needs to be said, especially when we're talking about race. Yeah, I just uh, you know the the, the the minute we decide, I, I have yet to see the domain in which when we decide not to talk about something, that's the good move. Huh. That's this a great like, insight. Right. I mean, that like this is like the marriage counseling thing when when there's someone someone was saying that the, the very good marriage counselors can tell in the first 10 minutes whether that couple's going to stay together or not. Right. Yeah. You know, so you have you have that. Uh, you have the like the silence, whatever silence around, you know, various sort of oppression. And then now you have a stunning stat in, in the book, which is, quote, since 2010, 40 percent of U.S. couples married across religions, but only 10 percent married across the political aisle. Yeah. Whoa. And, and I, I have a colleague just down the hall um, who is a liberal married to a Trump voter mm, um, wow. and, and maybe is I think I know, too. Yeah. Uh, I think I theoretically, through second person, know of a couple people, but I don't directly. That's kind of it, right? And my my own, yeah, I have two daughters. My my twenty five year old said to me not long ago, I can't even imagine marrying someone of the other political stripe, which in her case was, I can't imagine marrying a Trump voter. <laughs> wow, I mean that. I mean, I and I, I guess I guess I under uh, this is a tough one, right? I mean, because it, I think it's a tough one. All right, so I grew up. I'm 50. I just turned 56 and I grew up in Kenilworth, Illinois, which at the time was the richest suburb in America. And mm. my parents were the second uh, Catholics and second Democrat, second Catholic. I mean, they're, they're, they're like they went to go vote in the primary in Kenilworth and there was no ballots. So they had to go up to Glencoe because Jews were there. Um, and oh. they had, 
worse. So this is 1969, 68, something like that. Right. So it had to be 68. Um, but, you know, my experience with my deep conservative um, neighbors, I'll give an example. One Halloween, this is like 75, 74. I dressed as Nixon. I had a Nixon mask and I just had tapes all over me. And uh, uh, very various. And these are people who like like Donald Rumsfeld. I don't, I don't know if we've talked to this in this podcast. Donald Rumsfeld used to be one of the people who we we car shared to go to like swimming practice. Really? Lived, lived, like down the street. Yeah. Anyway, I dressed as Nixon. They would come in and t- take pictures. They thought it was hilarious. And my experience at Second City, certainly in the 90s, it's changing now, was was like the worst audiences were the real like social justice crusaders who were getting offended on me and the conservatives were great because they laugh at anything. Um, <laughs> I think that's, I think that is, that has shifted, but certainly what I knew is like, we were in no way at each other's throats, but it also felt like we knew that the most important things, family, love, fe- feeling valued, feeling seen, caring for each other, helping each other out, that was a lowest common denominator that we're like, oh no, we're, we're, we all have that. And everything else felt a little more superficial. Mm. Now, again, privilege card. This is a bunch of wealthy white people. So I, I, I get that. Yeah. Uh, so part of this is what we have uncovered in, in, over time in terms of the incredible injustice that, that's going on. Mm. Yet to the point we keep making. Um, and Dan Gilbert talks about this, right? And Harvard about, you know, how much we share. Uh, in, 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 you know, in the little things where, where we don't, I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and this whole idea of, you know, my, my being leery to speak up and how much do we, do we share? Like, I actually think this is one of the biggest challenges in the broader DEI conversation is there, there are privileged white individuals who very much want to lean in and have a conversation. They're like, I don't even know if I'm using the right language, the right words. I don't want to be called the next racist, etc. And so right. I'm going to think more on whether I can come up with an example of a time when it's beneficial to not share or whatever. I know. I, 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 I really am trying, like, it's like Trump taking the fifth today, you know, uh, which, which happened, which is like, of course right. he took the fifth. Like, like that's, sa- that's sound advice with regard to not incriminating himself in, in right. any regard. And I think that would be true of anyone. You would, you now that's politics aside or whatever aside. Like I understand yeah. the action and I can divorce that from whatever my, my feelings are about this, this mm-hmm. individual. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I get, I guess too, because this is not just an American phenomenon, the right. I mean, the, the politicians who are gaining a lot of steam Absolutely. are ones who are incredibly coarse, right? And you do dehumanizing language and, and are, and, and this is a thing, you know, uh, this is a thing about comedy, which is it's an incredible thing for bringing people together in terms of that shared laughter. But when the thing, when Trump is being a comic and I, su- I suggest that he, he, he is sometimes, mm. um, he's doing it, uh, to bring people together at the expense of another. Mm. Um, and that's just as powerful, unfortunately. Yeah, sadly, because we like to be divided into us versus them and someone to to ridicule those people that we we were kind of thinking were clueless too. So, yeah, yeah, not good. All right. So we always end the podcast asking our guest for a yes and story. Do you have one for us? 
I love that. I do. So, you know, because you've read the book so thoroughly that I I make reference to Trump's former Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. And uh, Betsy's a... I'm so glad you're talking about this. Yeah. Okay. So Betsy DeVos is a personal friend. And I told someone this when I read they like, wait a second. (laughs) So, um, you know, we, we hadn't interacted while she was in the administration, but I thought it was important for me to shoot her an email just to let her know that I reference her in the book. And I didn't even know if I'd get a response because it's been quite a while. And uh, she did respond very generously and said, actually, would you and your wife like to have dinner with Dick and me, I'd, I'd love to talk to you about some of the broader conversation that's going on with diversity. Um, so my yes and was, uh, she also mentioned in her email to me that she was just coming out with a book. And so my yes and was, yes, and how about we both read each other's books and then dialogue about them together and try and put to practice this whole thing that I'm supposedly saying people can do. And, uh, you know, to, to my great delight, she enthusiastically said, yes, let's do it. And we've not yet had that conversation. We, we did have dinner. And I actually just had an email from her yesterday saying, I, I just finished the book. Have you finished mine? When can we talk? So, um, yeah. That's, that's, that's all right. So, Without you don't have to reveal any gory details, but what was dinner with her like? Uh, you know, fascinating. Certainly gave a, a very different sense, you know, on, on what life was like in the administration as compared to what we would have thought publicly her perception was. But I think the the biggest thing she said that it's no surprise to any of us, but it's kind of the same thing that you and I have been talking about for the last 30 minutes. She's like, the thing that was most unnerving to me is that people couldn't attack my ideas without attacking me as a person. And she said, yeah. I, I understand it. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a big girl. I can handle it, etc. cetera. Um, and so while we, we, I'm not shy of saying we definitely have political differences and some ideological ones. I think it really did bring back to this, but why did this have to be so dehumanizing? And Hmm. so, yeah, well, because everyone's doing it. I mean, that, 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 that's the reality too. This is, and I, both sizing it's like, I'm not both sizing it. Everyone's doing it. No, you're absolutely right. That's, that is what, and, and uh, let's take this out of uh, out of politics. It's it is it is a Twitter like it's sports. It's mm-hmm. like everyone's doing it, and and yeah. I think in part, and this is this is where, and you don't, I don't think you go so much into tech in the book, but but that's a huge thing here too because when the algorithm, when when the money you make is tied to the algorithm that says fear and outrage is going to score higher, yeah. That's yeah. not good. Right. Yeah, not, I'm I'm not a fan of blaming it all on the media or technology. No. However, we have to acknowledge that's a huge factor that's perpetuating. I mean, and we're allowing it to, right? But um, right. but yeah, yeah it, no, it, it always existed. It always existed in, in, in human to human culture, but just like there's a difference between a nuclear bomb and a musket. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. So right. Um the book is called Digital, Diverse, and Divided, How to Talk to Racists, Compete with Robots, and Overcome Polarization. David Livermore, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Kelly. It was a delight. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. 
We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Survive